It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm your host, John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, Stravinsky and Shostakovich, few countries can match the richness of Russia's cultural heritage. But since Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine, Russian artists and art have been increasingly unwelcomed by the rest of the world. From the first rice crops sown in South Carolina to the invention of mobile refrigeration and the ice cream scoop, African-Americans have shaped how America and the rest of the world eats. A new exhibition in Harlem explores their foundational contribution to the American table. But first. It's nearly a month since Russia began its war in Ukraine. Fierce fighting continues in the southern port city of Mariupol, which is under intense Russian bombardment. Meanwhile, Ukrainian forces have reportedly taken back some territory in the south of the country. As the war rages, Vladimir Putin is intensifying his crackdown at home. More than 15,000 people are estimated to have been arrested in anti-war protests in Russia. And yesterday, his most prominent critic, Alexei Navalny, was sentenced to nine years in prison. The ruling was made public through an echoey video link from the makeshift courtroom inside the prison where he's being held. Mr. Navalny, who leads a political party that opposes Mr. Putin, had been found guilty of fraud and contempt of court after a phony trial. He was already serving a three-year sentence in a labor colony and has repeatedly denounced Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Outside the court, Mr. Navalny's lawyers described the entire judicial process as unusual. Shortly afterwards, they too were detained and taken away in a police bus. Just over a year ago, Mr. Navalny returned home to Russia, voluntarily. He had been in Germany, recovering from an attempted assassination with a poison developed in Soviet laboratories. He was arrested shortly after his plane landed. Now, after his court appearance yesterday, he faces many years of further imprisonment. He looked very gaunt. He looked pretty terrible physically. And I think he was just as strong in spirit as he had been when I was in the flight with him. The day when he came back to Russia. Arkady Ostrovsky is our Russian editor. He was absolutely resolute. He knew what he was doing. I think he takes courage from his conviction from the people who support him. I think 
he's become much more convinced and much more religious in some ways while in jail. So strong in spirit and looking pretty terrible in body. As you said, you were on the flight with him when he returned from Germany. You know him better than most other people, I would imagine. Can you speculate on what his state of mind might be, on whether he's emotionally and spiritually equipped for what he's going to go through? Yes, I have spoken to him over the years, and I do know him quite well. I think he knew what he was stepping into. This was more than just a risk. It was a lifetime decision. I think he has decided for himself that political death is worse for him than physical suffering and possibly physical death. I think he was under no illusion that going back to Russia and stepping into that jail cell might be the end of him, that he might never see freedom. This said, he's not a death wish. He's done it because he thought, and he still thinks, I'm sure, that this is the test he has to go through because he is on the right side of history. And he is absolutely right about that. I think he still thinks he has a chance and that this fight between him and Putin and the political system Putin tried to create has now entered the final and terminal stage. And obviously he knows that he cannot come and will not come out of that jail cell alive while Putin sits in the Kremlin. So he's bet everything, he's bet his life on the change of regime and change of the country and change of historic course in Russia. But for now, what will change for Navalny in light of the sentence? From the penal colony, which was incredibly harsh already, he is now going to maximum security jail. This means two things. First, it means probably the end of any communications that Navalny has had over the past year. One of the remarkable things, which kept a lot of people going, kept him going, kept his family going, and kept politics in a way going, was his ability to communicate from within that penal colony. The way it worked, his lawyers would go in almost every day. They would talk to him. They would take dictations from him. Then they would then post it on Instagram, on Twitter, and through other social media networks. So he continued to speak out of jail. That was very, very important, communication. Number two, I think, as his team, which is outside Russia, is saying the risk, the physical risk to his life has gone up exponentially with this prison. He is now going to be face-to-face with the very people who poisoned him with Novichok, who tried to assassinate him once in August 2020. There is absolutely no reason why they, in this circumstances of war, of complete military dictatorship and totalitarianism, why they wouldn't now finish their jobs. Do you think that his verdict was ordered by Putin, by the Kremlin? Yes. And this is what Kira Yarmush, Mr. Navalny's spokesperson, said from outside the country. This is uh, not a surprise that uh, Putin would like to keep Alexei in prison for as long as he is in power. We are completely sure that this is his direct order to uh, imprison Alexei. And, uh, there is absolutely no doubt that one man handed out the sentence. They were not even trying to hide it. There were recordings of the judge during the trial speaking to the presidential administration, to the Kremlin. The trial itself was held within the penal colony. So effectively, it's a trial within a gulag system. There is only one man who has handed out the sentence. There is only one man who ordered his poisoning and failed in doing that just as there is only one man who's decided to unleash this war in Ukraine, and in parallel with that, a war on his own people.
when he was jailed last year, he went on hunger strike. You mentioned that he will be in prison face-to-face with the people who tried to kill him. I know this is a macabre question, but do you expect him to survive his sentence? It's a very hard question to answer for many reasons. And just as with the war itself, there is always an element in you that just doesn't want to believe things. In some ways, the Kremlin action towards Navalny were shaped by the Kremlin's perception of threat emanating from Navalny and from his movement. So it had tolerated him for a long while, just harassed and hassled him, arrested him occasionally. It then decided the risk has gone up, so they decided to poison him. And when he came back, to put him into this harsh penal colony. Uh, If the Kremlin now decides it's in a more precarious position, that Putin is in a more precarious position as a result of the blunder he has brought upon himself and the world with this war, and if the Kremlin's perception of risk of keeping Navalny alive goes up, I think there'll be very little to stop them from killing him. This said, they will also be calculating what brings more damage to them, because the death of Alexei Navalny, God forbid, would not be the end of his movement, of his idea. He would instantly become a martyr. What happens next, I think, depends on how things evolve in the battlefields in Ukraine. But you think he will remain influential, whether through the movement he's created or, God forbid, as a martyr? The question is not whether they will continue to do it. The question is whether they will have any channels of getting it across Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, not just being blocked, but they're now being banned as extremists in Russia. I don't think it will have a massive impact on Navalny's followers. The strength of Navalny's movement has always been in the fact that it's a horizontal structure. It's not a hierarchy. It's a big network of people each having their own will, each having their own agency. And what Navalny is calling on them to do is to use that agency to do whatever they can to bring down the totalitarian regime. He's riding a historic wave. Navalny believes that history has a flow, that history has a direction. And what Putin is doing is trying to reverse history. And you can do it for a little while, but you can never succeed because history always has more tricks up its sleeve. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, John. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Since the invasion of Ukraine, Russia's economy has been hit by unprecedented sanctions. But it's not just Russian products that are being boycotted. Cultural institutions around the world have begun shunning Russian artists, and not just those associated with Vladimir Putin's regime. Russian artists, like Russians in general, have been caught in the backlash against the invasion of Ukraine, regardless of their opinions about the war. Andrew Miller is the culture editor for The Economist. Invitations from Western venues to Russian artists, dancers, musicians have been rescinded. 
uh, partnerships and links with state-run organisations like the Bolshoi Theatre and the Hermitage Museum have been suspended and Russia finds itself isolated in the arts, as it does in many other aspects of life, because of Vladimir Putin's war. And is this happening specifically to artists who support Vladimir Putin, or is it broader than that? Well, some of the artists involved do support Vladimir Putin. For example, to take probably the most prominent example, Valery Gergiev, the maestro of the Marinsky Theatre in St. Petersburg, he rebuilt it after the end of the Soviet Union and made it famous and made himself world famous. All of that with Mr. Putin's support and backing and pressed by uh, venues in America and elsewhere to renounce the war in Ukraine, Mr. Gergiev has refused and subsequently he is no longer welcome in many concert halls in the West. And that's perfectly understandable, as is the decision to suspend links with the Bolshoi and the Hermitage and other big state-backed institutions in Russia. The trickier cases involve those artists who are not involved in propaganda and are not directly related to the state, and in some cases have in fact distanced themselves from Mr. Putin and from the war. And tell us about one of those cases. Well, for example, there's a young Russian piano prodigy called Alexander Melofiev, who was due at the moment to be doing a tour in Canada. And all of the invitations from those venues have been retracted because of what's happening in Ukraine. This is despite the fact that the pianist himself wrote on Facebook that every Russian will feel guilty for decades because of the terrible and bloody decision that none of us could influence and predict. And how common is it for artists to speak out? Lots of artists of all kinds, rappers, dancers, filmmakers, have spoken out, have denounced the war. Many of them have resigned their jobs or withdrawn from appearances voluntarily in a kind of self-cancelling process. And indeed, some have fled abroad. Just recently, there was a concert given in Istanbul by a famous Russian rapper, which was largely attended by other Russian exiles, in which the crowd chanted, you know, glory to Ukraine and no war. So there are artists speaking out heroically, it has to be said, in the country and also taking the decision to leave it. And when they leave, are they welcomed abroad? I think in some cases they are welcome. I mean, for example, Olga Smirnova, who is a prima ballerina of the Bolshoi Theatre in Moscow, has announced that she was quitting her job and has been invited to join the Dutch National Ballet. And she said that she's against the war with every fibre of her soul. Of course, she is a big name and it's easier for her to find uh, and embrace uh, new opportunities in the West than it is for many other people. And a lot of Russians are finding that they are tarnished by association with the war and with Vladimir Putin and with their country, regardless of their opinions. So really, what is the point of all this? I mean, economic sanctions have a tangible effect on Russia. What does sidelining Russian artists do to the country? Well, I suppose one of them in this case has been to put immense pressure on arts administrators who have no experience of dealing with this kind of crisis and who are facing pressure from their sponsors and from their audiences to cut links with Russian artists at a time when Russian bombs are falling on hospitals in Ukraine. And it's it's perfectly understandable that they're feeling those pressures and responding to them in the way they have. I mean, I guess... The point of all sanctions, economic, artistic, cultural, is to bring pressure to bear on a rogue regime 
without resorting to direct conflict. And some of the instruments that are used as a consequence are blunt, and that's certainly the case here. Andy, let me end on a slightly more personal note. You and I both lived in Moscow. You are a Moscow correspondent. What is your view of how the world has been treating Russian art and artists? It'd be nice to think that art wasn't political, but that isn't really true. Art is, at its core, political. It's about universal values. And it's inevitable at a time of war that art is going to be caught up in that. But I do think these blunt emergency measures must be temporary. Russian artists do need to be welcomed back into the world of culture and civilization for their benefit and for ours. Because if we decide to extend this boycott to all of Russian culture, we deprive ourselves of enormously valuable insights into life in general and to Russia in particular. I mean, there's no more valuable guide to extremism in Russia than Dostoevsky. And there's no more powerful prophets of peace in literature than Tolstoy. And there's no more moving tribute to the possibilities of rescuing beauty and dignity from totalitarianism than the music of Shostakovich. So we mustn't forget that. And we must remember who our enemy is here and who actually are our allies. Andy, always great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. Welcome, John. Harlem has been a hub of African-American life, culture, and business for nearly a century. It has also long been one of the best places in New York to eat. Now, a new exhibition by the Museum of Food and Drink, in partnership with the Africa Center, celebrates the meeting of those traditions. African-American Making the Nation's Table explores the fundamental role that African-American chefs, distillers, farmers, and entrepreneurs have played in creating an American cuisine. We're trying to show that African-American food is American food. Catherine Piccoli is one of the curators of the exhibition, and earlier this month, she gave me a tour. A lot of people, when they think of African-American cuisine, might think of Southern or soul food, but African-Americans really shaped the culinary landscape of the United States from agriculture to fine dining to brewing and distilling to entrepreneurship and invention. It goes far, far beyond what people might stereotypically think of. That immense variety of contributions is apparent in the first thing you see after entering the museum. This is the Legacy Quilt. It's about 14 feet tall and 28 feet across. There are 406 quilt blocks, and each block represents an African-American contribution to American cuisine. It's a colorful patchwork of faces, food, and objects. They primarily depict people, but we also have a few ingredients, dishes, and things like that. So I recognize a number of the foods and people on this quilt, but there are plenty that I don't recognize. Do you have a few favorite stories, favorite panels you can tell us about? Sure, I absolutely can. We have Alfred Kral. He redesigned the ice cream scoop from like a two-handed Victorian mold and disher situation to the ice cream scoop that we know with the little like lever on the side. All right, okay, let's keep walking. That's fantastic. In a nearby cabinet, an original Alfred Kral scoop, unquestionably familiar to anyone who's ever served ice cream, is displayed with care. Alongside it are other similarly commonplace, often overlooked items, things that fundamentally change the way Americans and the rest of the world eat. And tell me about it. I was struck by this picture of the text underneath Frederick McKinley Jones. That's someone who's 
central to how Americans eat today that I had never heard of before. Yeah, this was a really surprising story, I think, for a lot of us. And uh, he's central not just to the way that Americans eat today, but really the way the world eats. Frederick McKinley Jones invented the first portable roof-mounted refrigeration unit for trucks and then took that and founded Thermoking. And you might recognize Thermoking trucks on the street. His work is really important, and it really creates the global cold chain that we use to eat food in this country and elsewhere. But the exhibition goes back farther than the age of mechanized trucks and Victorian kitchen inventions to the very landscape of the country and the nutrition it provided. And what I'm looking at here, this is a huge, beautifully carved mortar and pestle. And it looks like we're looking at a number of different implements used in in rice farming. So with the mortar and pestle, you put your grains of rice that still have the husks on in there and you pound. And so it separates the grains of rice from, you know, the indigestible hulls. I remember learning that uh, it was French planters who created the rice economy in the United States. That's not the case, though, right? That's not the case. So rice was brought to the low country in the southeast United States in 1648. And shortly thereafter, West Africans from the grain coast of Africa were enslaved and brought here because they were already farming a type of rice indigenous to Africa. Those enslaved Africans did a number of things. They engineered a new landscape, right? Those coastal plains are swampy, they're marshy. So first they had to clear a lot of brush and trees, and then they created dams and waterways that mimicked those, uh, a rice culture in West Africa. I think that one of the things that we forget is just how foundational, and here in in the absolute literal sense of foundational, the African hand is to the food of the Americas. Jessica Harris is a writer, culinary historian, and the show's lead curator. I'm speaking to you from Charleston, South Carolina. Good place to be talking about this. Consider the rice fields outside of South Carolina. Geographical transformation based on the labor of Africans and their descendants. They processed it and devised ways and methodologies and used methodologies that they'd already had on the African continent to process it. Then they cooked it. Then they served it. Then they cleaned the tables and cleared the tables. And then they probably had to empty the chamber pots. You don't get any more foundational than that. The exhibition argues that despite that foundational role, African-Americans never received due credit for their influence on American cuisine. Alfred Crowell, for instance, patented his ice cream scoop, but never profited from it. It's a sadly familiar pattern, going back to the earliest days of rice cultivation. So they grew it. Their knowledge and technology and agricultural devices and advances allowed it to flourish and flourish to the degree that it provided uncalculable wealth to folks who were never paid, to folks who never paid anybody for any of it. Visitors to the exhibition are left with admiration at the ingenuity of the brewers, chefs, entrepreneurs and farmers who persevered despite that, showing far more faith in their country than it ever showed in them. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. 
And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. See you back here tomorrow. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.